You are listening to the Living Truth Podcast with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. Please stay tuned to Living Truth as we engage in an in-depth journey of discovery through the discussion of God's Word for the purpose of devotion and godly living. We pray that you would be blessed through today's conversation and that God would sanctify your heart in truth, for His Word is truth. This is John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. You are listening to Living Truth. Um, today, we're actually going to continue on a conversation that we started last time on the incarnation of Christ, the uh, the event that we celebrate at Christmas time uh, of Jesus, the Son of God, becoming a person, a, a human being, and what that all means, and the significance of that event uh, in time and eternity as well. And we actually began um, discussion uh, in John chapter 1 with the question or with the, the verse, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But of course, that led us into an earlier passage uh, of John 1. And everything really started with the question that Jesus asked his disciples. And the question was, uh, who do men say that I am? And of course, there was uh, several different answers given. There's still, there are several answers given today. Uh, some say that Jesus was God. Uh, some say that he was just a man. Uh, some say he was an angel. Some say he was just a teacher. Um, but the answer to that question really determines your eternal future. And it all hinges upon who is Christ and what do you do with with this person, uh, this man called Jesus. And so we began the discussion and hopefully we'll continue it this week. Uh, and maybe for another week week to come. In fact, uh, the incarnation is something you can talk uh, your entire life about the significance of, of Christ becoming a man. Absolutely. Among us. And by the way, Peter responds, Etamashiach ben Chaya um, uh, Elohim, you are the Christ, uh, the Son of the living God. And it's at that moment that Jesus says, um, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And uh, it really does take um, a work of God on the heart for an individual, not just to um, uh, look at the information concerning the person of Christ, but to believe the information adequately and accurately for what it is, and to see him for who he really is in a salvific or a soteriological manner. And you think about it, it's not something that you would come to a conclusion based on human reasoning alone. Absolutely There not. has to be a revelation because it's not something that we would normally think about or think was possible. The whole dynamic of of God becoming man. I mean, that's impossible in people's minds. How is that even possible? But yet, that is the revelation of Scripture and uh, the um, the foundation of Christianity is, is the person of Christ. Indeed. Um, You know, John, last week when we were discussing this, um, uh, this really is a Pandoric box because uh, several historically throughout uh, historical theology and church history have struggled with this very issue. Um, and not in a light way, uh, by the way. I mean, you had the Ebionites in the second century that questioned the genuine deity of Christ and suggested that Christ had the Spirit after his baptism and he was not pre-existent. It was a form of adoptionism, as it were. Or you had the first uh, theological uh, heresy in the first century, which was docetism, which springs from the Greek word dakeo, to appear. And, And of of course, they question the genuine humanity, which I think is very interesting, by the way. Let me just say that parenthetically, that the first controversy concerning the nature of Christ was not whether or not he was God, but whether or not he was really human. Right, because they had the idea that if uh, they had this dualistic idea of the universe, everything that was spiritual was, well, that's, that's good, and everything that's material, well, that's evil, well, so how could something spiritual like God take on material which is evil? Uh, that stems from a very you know different point of view, uh, I think false point of view. And Platonism. The Platon, exactly. Right. Even though that God says in Genesis 1, or Genesis chapter 1, 
after he made everything and he said it was good. But they, of course, they don't have that view. But that's that's where that stems from as well. But you know, the um, you have the Arianism, the uh, Arianism, the fourth century, and and they questioned the genuine deity of Christ and suggested that Christ was the first and highest created being. And of course, it was behind this that the Nicene Council in three twenty five right. uh, A.D. was formed. And literally, the question was: Was he Hamaousian? Was he of the same substance as the Father, or was he Hamaiousian? Was he similar in substance? Which, which is interesting. I know we're we're talking about things of is this in, uh, things of way in the past, but the the early church. You know, they, they argued or struggled over this very issue, and they took a church council. In fact, I understand that even after the Council of Nicaea, the Arians, the Arianists were very popular, uh, mm-hmm. and they even had their own councils as well, after, after the fact, and they would go back and forth um, over this very issue because it was, it was, so, um, it was so crucial as to, okay, who is this Jesus? How do we clear, clearly understand or define and articulate what we exactly believe? And this is what, you know, if they get this wrong, you know, some people, you know, they don't join a church because it's got a different worship style or it has a different, you know, um, flavor of, uh, it has a different translation of the Bible they use or whatever. But in early church history, it was, it was on the person of Christ that really um, started off. And that was until, you know, the... 325 or so, I think it was the Council of Nicaea. Correct. But it tells you something, that the early, that the church took such care in trying to really hash this out and understand the person of Christ. And uh, it tells you that, uh, it tells you that how important that was and is, and obviously the, the, the creed's coming from that, you know. Well, John says in his epistle, the individual who denies that Christ has come in the, f- has not come in the flesh. Right. Um, uh, suggests that he has not, right. Right, because the Gnostics is, would say that. Is not from God. Uh, you had the Apollinarians in the fourth, fourth century that denied the completeness of Christ's humanity, and it, they did it in an interesting way. Um, they suggested that he was divine and that he was human, but he did not, in fact, have a human mind. The divine Laga somehow replaced the human mind. And, of course, following that, you had the Nestorians in the 5th century uh, that denied the unity of person. And right. they suggested that union was moral and not organic. Thus, you had two persons and the human was completely controlled by the divine. And then you had the Eutychians and in the fifth century, they um, struggled with a distinction of the natures. Right. So they became basically monophysicists. Right. They won. So that the human right. nature was swallowed up by the divine to create a th- new third nature, uh, a tertium quid, as it were. Um, uh, what you see, and you mentioned the Arians, we actually see the birth childs of um, Arianism today. Well, I had a couple of Arians come to my door recently, well, actually a year ago. Uh, they're called Jeho- Jehovah Witnesses today. Correct. That's that's the foundation. In fact, I told the these were young people who came to my door, and I talked with them for uh, a very long time. And I said, "Do you guys look at your church history, or look at church history in general? Um, what you're following is nothing new." Uh, but all that's all this is interesting is because is it just fact that there's been so many ideas and yes. so many understandings or, or attempts. For whatever reason, whether it you know, it tells you that this has been this has been on the forefront of struggle of who exactly is Jesus, you know. And of course, now today, you know, um, uh, you have this this quest to find the historical Jesus. You know, the Jesus of the Gospels is one thing, but the actual Jesus is a different thing. And and it's very it's very you know, p- people want to. Um, understand what they want to understand sometimes, and 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 it's hard. You know, we're talking about the nature of God. We're talking about an act of God and 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 Him becoming flesh, and that is hard for us to really get our 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 minds around that, and which leads to these um, sub understandings. Let's say, okay, either you deprive Jesus of His deity in one sense, or you deprive Him of His humanity. But the truth is that he's fully God and fully man. I mean, the, the, the Council of, um, I think it's Chalcedon. Chalcedon, the, 451, if I remember correctly. hashed this out and really came out with a, 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 an, an articulate creed that's, that stated, um, 
in so many words that he was fully God and fully man and neither was um, deprived, let's say, or neither was, uh, did he have any less, you know? And, uh, there was not a lessening nor a mixture right. to, uh, so, uh, so as to make a demigod a third other in nature. So then here's the question, though. Why? Why, why is it so important that in all this discussion, and I know we know the answer why, but we're going to talk about it, but why is it important to keep Christ full humanity and keep Christ full deity? At the same time, I think that's important. Do you want to take that on at the beginning of this discussion <laughs> or, or near the end? I don't know. I'm just, I'm just putting it out there because you got to think: is why are they taking this time to really decide this, and why is it so important? You know, I mean, we there's two sides. You have Christ. Okay, is he truly human? Is he 100% human? And go through that maybe. And is he fully 100% deity? And then. Well, how do those things come together? How do how does that how does that work? How do those two? It seems like polar opposites join together into one. And, and to be sure, John, when we contemplate the the interaction of the divine with humanity in historical philosophical annals. Uh, when we look at that in cultural speak, for instance, in Greco-Romanized tales, um, it was not necessarily a good thing for the gods to interact. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, Platonism right. and uh, this struggle that they had with the divine and human aspect and what was um, uh, corporeal or what was physiological being bad and what was spiritual being good. But one of the interesting things is both with um, Aristotle as well as with Plato, uh, they struggled because um, in in the Greco-Romanized tales of their gods, when men interacted with women or with other men, it was normally to wreak havoc, to rape, to pillage, to do something horrendous. Or you had a demigod, like for instance, a a Herculean god, as it were, who was not uh, 100% Zeus-like, but was not 100% human-like. And and there was kind of this separation so that the the demigod did not belong to either world, didn't really belong to the gods, didn't belong to the humans. And and, uh, so it really became a a conflux, as it were. Um, And I think this discussion is important. In fact, Uh, What I would suggest is let's entertain this discussion through a text, namely, let's run for a moment. We're going to entertain John again, necessarily, but let's run to Philippians. I knew it. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Philippians. They say great minds think alike. Well, I'm... Let us pray. Let us pray, yeah. Um, we are looking at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And, uh, yes. There's an interesting scripture uh, that is presented here. And uh, uh, this particular text uh, really does extrapolate on the nature of Jesus uh, in his humanity. And, uh, and I think that this scripture must be unpacked. Uh, for its essence. John, would you like to read? And then, sure. in order to grasp the context, why don't you I'll start? I'll start first one. There we go. How's that? And I'll read in English. <laughs> Not in Greek, okay? I'll read in English for our listening listening ears out there. Okay, uh, Philippians 2, 1 says, If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others." Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, 
although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay. So obviously the, the context in this passage is Paul encouraging the church there uh, to be united, to, uh, to be considerate of one another, to be of one mind, of one spirit. And how does he suggest that they do that? He says, be uh, hum- humble, but with humility of mind, regard each other, uh, one another as more important uh, than yourself. And he says, have this, this attitude. What attitude? The attitude of humility, which was also in Christ Jesus in verse 5. And then he says, here's how Christ was your example of humility. He was God. He existed in the form of God. He is by nature God. But yet at the same time, he took on the human flesh and lived very humbly as a servant. And so this is a picture that the incarnation is a picture of not only, uh, is a uh, description of not only Christ becoming man, but it describes the humility of that act. The very fact that the second person of the Trinity would even take on flesh and then live as an obedient man, as a servant, in that in that humble attitude. Paul says that is the example that we have. That is that is who Christ is. Yeah, I, I think it's important because if we if we look at this text, this text makes some interesting statements. Um, it suggests that he existed in the form of God. And this term form really means the nature right. of God. Right. Um, and, and uh, of course, the, the Greek is morphe. He, he existed in the nature of God. And it refers to the outward appearance that actually reveals the inward nature. In other words, Jesus was God of very God. Right. So when we read this text sometimes in English, you can almost misunderstand it because you can read it in this way. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. You can almost think, well, you know, he wasn't trying to reach or obtain uh, to deity, but that's not what the text right. is saying. The text is not suggesting what he was attempting to reach to. The text begins by saying what he already was right. and possessed by right and by, by nature. nature. Thus, ontologically, which is the participial construct of the um, uh, of the present tense form, Amy, to exist or to be, right. verbally, by his very existence, his very nature being or essence was one with the nature of the father one with the nature of the holy spirit so that in deity the father has nothing that the son does not have and the son has nothing that the father does not have and the holy spirit has nothing nor lacks anything that the father and the son has so that ontologically in being all may be said to be omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, and you go on and on and on for each person of the Holy Trinity possessed uh, possess equal attributes right. ontologically right. or in existence. Right. And so the text is suggesting it's unnecessary for him to reach for this or seek to grasp this in so much as this is who he is by nature. Now, I'd like to stop parenthetically and just suggest, is this not what was revealed in the synoptic gospels at the transfiguration? Right. I mean, this is, he says, this is my son. Or actually, you know, he says, I'm thinking about a couple of events at the, at the baptism as well, as, but as the transfiguration, the unveiling of sorts of the glory that he had, right? 
and in fact, uh, Jesus in the garden, he prays, he says, Father, glorify me as with the same glory that I had bef- with you before I came, you know, basically he says. But God says, God the Father says, this is my son. Listen to him, right? Uh, you know, God, uh, Jesus is the only begotten son of God, the only unique son of God. He is of the same material, you could say, the same substance as God. When we read, when we read in Philippians 2, um, he existed in the form of God. I think of form, I think of an outward, outward form, right? Outward shape. But as you just said, the word morphe means substance. So he's, so he's, the, he's the same substance as God, but at the same time, he doesn't regard that equality something that he actually has to grab onto. He already is. And it's not something that we can grab onto. You know, it's interesting because as you look at this text, the text is very specific. Who, although he existed, which is a verb for being. Right. That's one way of saying he shared the same nature. In the form of God or in the nature of God, that's another way of saying nature. Now, these are two distinct ways that are repetitive by the apostle. Different words, but two ways to hone in on this statement. Jesus was deity. Jesus was deity, first of all, in being and secondarily in nature. So the Apostle Paul, with these two prongs thus far, is able to say to his Philippian readers, he was and is, in fact, God of very God. But here's what's also interesting, because Paul, and we'll, you know, we're getting to a little Greek here, but Paul also said, when he says, but he emptied himself, taking the what of a bondservant? The form. The form. Same Greek word, morphe, which tells you something. Yes. This wasn't an act. God, yes. Jesus wasn't acting. He wasn't saying, I'm God. I'm going to put on this act of becoming humble. No, just as the fact that he was truly God by his nature, he is truly humble by his nature. He says he takes on the form, the morphe of a bondservant. In other words, what Christ does, he doesn't, he doesn't fake it. By become, he doesn't say, I'm going to become a man, I'm going to live, I'm going to show them how to live as a humble, you know, servant, so I can put on this act, so that, no, this is who he really is. This is, when, when people saw Christ, when he met, when they met Jesus, they saw the kind of person he was, that wasn't an act. He was truly, God is humble. Yes, God he is. is hum- Think about that. God Which is, is shocking. Hum- God is humble. God, Jesus takes the form of a bondservant. Because that's what he is. He has that humility, that humble spirit. That is godly, a humble spirit. No wonder is is the fact that that you can't know God by having a prideful spirit. Well, ever notice that you can you cannot know God by having a prideful spirit. That is the furthest thing from God that you can get. But a humble spirit, it is when you have humility of heart that you learn something of God. You are now getting closer to what God is like in humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yes. I mean, that, that's, that's, the, that's a teaching that is central to the gospel message itself. Um, so if you look at this, who, although he existed, one way of saying being in the form, one way of saying nature of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Interesting because what is being said is he didn't have to assert. He didn't have to seize. He didn't have to utilize in so much as this was something that he was by very nature. These two prongs are two of the strongest ways in the New Testament, Pauline corpus of affirming the deity of Jesus Christ. When you you read and you hear the words that he did not regard uh, equality with God, a thing to be grasped, what does it make you think of? I, I think of of the uh, the statement from uh, that's that's described of of, of Lucifer. Oh. I will be like God, right? I will ascend. He, what five times I think it is in in that text. He is trying through his own pride elevate himself to Godhood to be equal with God. 
because he thinks it is something to be grasped. He thinks it's something to attain, that he can elevate himself upward. Here's the, here's the point. The incarnation is proof of two things. One, there is no way possible for you and I to elevate ourselves upward. And secondly, the way to, to, to get closer to God is really down. It's actually on your knees. It's actually through humility. That, the, that Christ, even in his own humility in coming to be born and living among men, is not, is not only an act of humility, it's an act that says, you cannot raise yourself higher, but I come down. I'll make the trip, because you can't make the trip. I will make the trip down here and be closer with you. Now, this is where it becomes important, uh, John, because first of all, in verse number six, what we have established is the ontological deity or nature of Jesus Christ, namely God of very God and substance. Now, this is congruent with or in agreement with John 1. Come on. Now, I hear people tell me all the time, Jesus never claimed, claimed to be God. Now, I mean, I know it's, you know, I hear that all the time. Jesus never ever claimed, claimed to be God. Show me one place where he ever claimed to be God, right? You ever hear that? Absolutely. You know, it's, that. That's something that, you know, that, that is thrown out there. I, it's thrown out there all the time. I want Jesus to say, I am God. Here I am. I'm God. I'm showing up. I'm God, right? He does. First of all, that is not how, how God often communicates, but it's, it's the truth of, of what we'll see in the scripture. Well, of course, in John eight fifty eight, Jesus says yes, to them before Abraham was, I am, uh, in the Greek, ego eimi. But what he would have said in Aramaic was, right. um, I am that I am, or I will be who I will be. And in verse number 59, the post text, the um, uh, opponents heard him in a Judaic monotheistic ear, and they heard him so accurately within the framework of what would be an Exodus 3 framework that the text says, therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him because Jesus, uh, 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 but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And they're not doing that, by the way, because they think that he's aged. They deny that he's even 50 years old up to the point in the pretext. But what they're looking at is they're saying, you have just claimed deity. Right. That, that, that threw him off course. I think it's interesting, and, and this is obviously going with our discussion here, you know, that there are, there's, here's an example. Um, uh, Jesus is praying in the garden, and he says, uh, Father, uh, glorify me uh, uh, in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. The John 17 high priestly prayer. The glorify me. Now, God doesn't share his glory with anybody else, but he glorifies the Son. With the glory that I had with you before the world began. Now, we already established last week that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what Christ is praying to God the Father is that God would re- Show that glory or glorify him with what with the uh, with the glory he had before um, that he would make it manifest once again right and and as you said, the Father does not share his glory, Jesus receives worship um i mean there are the the Bible is replete with examples, not only by a direct statement of jesus right by but by also the things that he does. Uh, in in verse number seven of Philippians chapter number two, it, herein lies a controversy, and mm. the text seems to read very naturally in verse number six. Who, although he existed in the form of God, again, buying that the existence is being, the form is nature, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. However, but. he emptied himself. It's mm. what we refer to in theological cir- circles as the kenosis. kenosis. Yeah. Now the question is, what does this emptying mean right. and not mean? Right. Because, well, it 
it's it's significant because there was a theory that came about um, that basically argued. I think it was um, what 18th century maybe. Um, I think it was some uh, German scholars that argued that Jesus uh, emptied himself of some of his uh, divine attributes. That for a time he decided not to be omnipresent, not to be omniscient, not to be, you know, fill in the blank as far as which attribute he decided not to be, which means this, that for a, that for a short period of time is what they argue, that Jesus wasn't fully God. He was God, but yet he wasn't, then, that there was a time where he wasn't fully God. Well, that, first of all, th- that, the scripture doesn't even teach that at all, because all throughout of New Testament especially, Jesus is described in many ways as having divine attributes, okay? And so, and in the first, what, 1800 years, I think it was, uh, of church history, no other, uh, and especially even the ones who, uh, uh, the early church fathers or the early apostles who spoke Greek and understood the Greek words, none of them, nobody else argued this this thing. There's great problems with saying that Jesus... Um, gave up any of his attributes for him to cease to be God or to be less than God or to be a lesser version of God, let's say, uh, would go against his very nature because the verse, the, the scripture just said two verses before, although he existed in the form of God, he emptied himself. Well, he doesn't stop being God. He still is 100% God. What is at risk? John, again, if you remember our analogy last week as being one of theology being a well-knitted sweater, and in that knitted or woven sweater, if we pull one thread, it threatens the whole of the garment. Um, so the question is then, what is at risk if, in fact, the Son of God Here's the classic uh, uh, preaching statement, divested himself of or gave up right. another phrase, um, uh, his, any of his attributes um, in the least. And here's what we have. We do not have 100% God. Now, right. let's not just speak in percentages. Right. We don't have God of very God. We don't have all of God, which means we have something else, right. which is a demigod. Which, it is a sub-god. Which also argues that you can have something less than God do the work of God. Correct. Which means it's a, it's a sort of slam in God's face that says, well, it doesn't require all of God to do this. But our, hey, listen, the, fa- the, the fall of man put us in such a precarious situation, put us, put mankind in such a, a dire position that only God could have rescued us out. And God cannot, cannot give up his attributes. Now, what is, what happens, of course, is that he chooses to limit perhaps, uh, or to not show, like, as you see in the transfiguration, where the, the 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 curtains pull back for a time, and you see the glory that comes out, and 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 Peter and um, sees that, uh, observes that, but it's not of his attributes. Maybe it's the of the manifestation of those attributes. The fact that here's what gets me. I know it sort of goes into the the session here. Is is the fact that Jesus was fully man, and fully God. That. There are times when you see his humanity come through. For example, when he grows tired, when he grows hungry, when he grows thirsty. But then there's times when you see his divinity come through. Obviously, the miracles, the 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 foreknowledge, the 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 you know, he says to the woman at the well, you know, go go call your husband. You've had five husbands. You know, she don't, he knows everything about her. That's a description of of his his divine um, attribute of omniscience. But you have, but but you have, um, what you have is a, a sort of veiling of those glory. No, I guess my point is, is that for thirty years, he lived among people, 
His own family lived among him. The, the townspeople saw him, and they only thought he was fully man. I mean, the, his own brothers didn't believe, his own family didn't believe he was God. Isn't this, jo- is this, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his, his brothers and sisters, we know where he's from. He was, he's from our hometown, Nazareth, right? So you have this, this part where his glory is not manifested in, in the sense you would see, hey, there's, there's a son of God, as, as John, John the Baptist saw. So what it tells you is, is, is that Christ lived such a way as a man, but yet God, and somehow those two weren't limited. I guess my, my whole point is to say is that he could not have divested himself of his attributes to be anything less than God. Well, well, here's the question. Let, let, let me just approach the question this way. That was way. kind of like a circular way of, of getting, getting into bringing in the, the humanity of Christ as well. <laughs> here's the question. If we take away even the nth percentile... Can God stop being God? Certainly not. I mean, seriously, can he stop being God? Absolutely not. But if we take away a smidgen of that, then the question is, how much of deity suffers in that? Right. I I don't know that we really think that because we think that uh, God could be quality, God, and have a lessening thereof. No. If you have anything less than all that God is, then you have problems on on every scale, not just a minute scale. It's kind of like this. If you've broken the law in one area, you've broken the law in all areas. Well, if you start to go and subtract or take away the percentile of deity, what suffers? Um, um, when we think of the attributes of God um, in, in classical Wayne Grudem thinking, um, um, uh, who is a systematic theologue, uh, both you and I had him for right. a professor at one time, and um, um, but he's not the only one to purport this. Uh, certainly, it's purported by Millard Erickson. It's purported by Dr. Norman Geisler. It's purported by Dr. John Frame, um, Dr. Cook. I mean, we could go on and on. Dr. Francis right. uh, Schaefer, uh, Dr. Uh, Schaefer, uh, a classic from DTS. I mean, you could go on and on. Uh, but uh, uh, one of the things that he purports, and I think that he states it in a, in a, in a marvelous way, is this. That, in fact, when we look at the attributes of God, we oft um, uh, look at the attributes and we want to parcel, percentile, or pie them out so that we look at them as distinct. For instance, we want to see God as a loving God, and then we want to see God separate from that as a holy God, and then we want to see God, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem articulates in a very fine manner is the fact that these attributes are intertwined and interconnected, non-separable, so that the the, the love of God is a holy love, and the love of God is a faithful, holy love, and the love of God is a righteous, faithful, holy love of God, and it's right. a true, faithful, holy love of God. Right. So that if you were, in fact, to take away any percentile, you are not affecting one attribute, you are affecting the whole of God, and to take away any smidgen of God is not to have God. Right. So, so that's important. Right. To come at this then in, in a different way then, what are you willing to have suffer in a savior? Right. Which part of God do you want to be without? And who sets the limit at what percentile is safe? And I am suggesting from Genesis to Revelation, anything that's not all of God is not a safe God. Well, it's not God. I mean, look at the adversary. Is he powerful? Yes, but is he loving? Is no. he is he is it, he good? Is he so so can you take a, a a deity as it were and and hoist him up and pose him up and say we'll lessen this, we'll equalize this, we'll drop a notch in this. That's not God. That's dangerous. Right. And that's diablery. So, that's demonic okay, as it so, were. So then the question is well, the question I'm thinking about is, okay, if he's fully God, 
if he does not divest himself or he does not give up any iota percent percentage or any part of being God, he existed in the form of God, then what do you do? What do you do with God becoming man? How is that how does that how does that happen? Because if he's fully God, okay, um how and he he's fully God, but then perhaps he's not fully man because well, I mean, how can God become? How can that? How can that be? I mean, he's God. I mean, he's he contains the whole. I mean, the Earth is his footstool. You know, the universes are, you know, in his in the palm of his hand. He has. You know, he's how can this this enormous? You know, as as Spurgeon says, the the um, oh, um, the the, um, the the universe can't. You know contain him yet he he basically he humbles himself to find a place within our hearts to live i'm butchering the quote there but basically he who makes the universe has found a home in our hearts how does that happen how does god become man this text answers that if you look at the text again the phenomena verse six who although he the relative pronoun who although he existed and the pronoun he the relative pronoun was who the pronoun uh, is he although he reaching back to its antecedent christ who although he existed in the form of god did not regard equality with god a thing to be grasped verse 7 answers it but emptied himself now the question is do we define this term emptying on our limited understanding of what emptying is right. or do we continue to read and the author actually answers his own right. dilemma right because the author answers the kenosis dilemma by the employment of a contemporaneous participial construct fanciful language he emptied by, by taking the form of a bond servant right. in other words jesus who is the son of God, God of very God, did not empty as you and I would by taking out some of what we are or taking out or removing any of his essence. He remained 100% deity all the way. But what he did was he emptied himself by not what he took out, but by what he put on, right. covering himself, and that is by taking on the form of a bondservant. In other words, what what limited the full expression of his deity was what he covered it with, namely the full existence and expression of his humanity. Well, let me carry it further, because it's not just that. Correct. It's not just the fact that he became man. It's the fact he divested himself of his position. He took the form not only as man, but as a bondservant. In other words, he is taking the form of a bondservant. How is he humbling himself? Or how is he uh, divesting himself of anything? Not of his ontological nature, not of his substance, his essence, but of his position. He decides not just to. This is why you know. This is why they were sh shocked. It's like, okay, where, where's this guy from? He didn't go to our schools, you know. He didn't come as you would think. You know, you would think, okay, if I'm God, I'm gonna show up on the scene, and you know, everybody's gonna greet me and say, you know, here he is, you know. But what, in fact, when he does present himself, he comes in as as a humble person on a donkey coming into the into Jerusalem, you know, before he's uh, uh, crucified. It's divesting himself of his position and taking on the position of a bondservant. So here you have one sense, you have God, a very God, but as a position of a bondservant. Right. Not lacking son of God. No. Not lacking second person of the Holy Trinity, but even covering that with a position of a bondservant. That, now that, that... <laughs> that blows my mind because here, I mean, he is he is one who deserves worship. He is one who he says, "I am one who came to serve." He says he says to his disciples, "You know, the people in the world, they want to be served. You know, the politicians, they want to be served. 
right? Kings want to be served, right? Uh, leaders, they all want to be served. They want you, you to do things for them, right? And God says, no, that's not the way, Jesus says, that's not the way it is with, with me. It's not the way God works. I come to serve you. Now, that is the antithesis because we think, oh, power happens to come when you have people serving you. And there's the danger, too, even not only within the church with you know, pastors and people, but even in positions of leadership in the world, in a, in a workplace, oftentimes it is looked at as I'm in control. You do what I say, you know, and, and, and leading like cracking the whip, that kind of thing. But Christ says, no, the way God does it is he comes to serve. He comes for the benefit of somebody else. That's a different kind of leader. And that's why even worldly leaders are afraid of him. Because people will 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 re- respond to that. We will uh, respond more so to somebody who cares to, to bear the cross for us, to be in the trenches for us, than somebody who's back in some high tower somewhere directing orders. We, re- we respond more to somebody who's willing to go through what we go through. That's why I think it's so wonderful that the incarnation of Christ... That he doesn't, he could have, if he wanted to, he could have just declared, you know, certain things to happen. But the fact he went, he took the trip, went all this way to live as a man and to remain as that man. He's still a man right now. He's still God and man. He's a God man. Tells me something about the fact that he is willing to give up something for the benefit of us. You know, I I think this is interesting because if you were to engage in this thinking, there are those who have a feigned concept of what this humility looks like. For instance, uh, within the Sabellianistic or or, uh, modalistic or monarchialistic um, um, persuasion, it would be this idea where um, this was not an event in which the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, became flesh. No, this was a, a scenario wherein the Father uh, uh, then uh, remained in heaven, but took on a manifested role of the Son, and then took on a manifested role of the Holy Spirit. And the classical statement is, Father in creation, Son in redemption, Holy Spirit in the church, so that the prayer betwixt Jesus and the Father is not real per se, it is almost reduced to ventriloquism, as it were. I, I here's here's what I'm afraid of. We are barely scratching the surface. I mean, we're we're we are we are barely. Um, I have to ask this question. I know we've got just maybe five minutes or so left because, and maybe we can continue this uh, obviously next time. But why? Why go through this? I mean. Why go through the entire? Imagine heaven is a gazillion miles away, right? And you got to pack your bags, you got to you know make the trip and make this long journey. I mean, maybe in God's timing, it's an instant. Let's just say, but imagine it's from heaven to earth. Is a there's a huge difference between the two. Why does God do this? Why go through the process of of sending your own very son to come to to planet Earth? Um, to live as a, a full human being, which we didn't get into the discussion today. Not that's yet, another no. discussion. But what is motivating? What is what? Why would a person make a journey all that way to be somewhere so that it can just he can just be there? Or what's 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 the what's the driving force of that? I, I guess maybe in the last four minutes or so because. Because we got to ask, we can ask, we could talk about the nature of Christ, which we, we want to talk about. But I'm thinking of, okay, we're celebrating Christmas, we're celebrating the incarnation of God. Great, this is this is fantastic. But why in the world go through the journey? Why even take on human flesh? Why even go through this this whole thing? What, what's what's you know? There are several questions to that, um, and several answers interconnected with that. Let's just propose a few. Um, at these latter moments. The first is, we need to understand, God was not obligated to do this. No. 
Nobody it, twisted his arm. Not in the least. I, I think sometimes that believers are entitled arrogant ones, right? Because right. we almost think that God uh, primarily was obligated. Now, what I'm going to argue secondarily will seem contradistinctive to what I just said, and I understand that, but you'll follow my reasoning. First of all, when I'm mentioning the initial obligation, I am speaking of an external source of obligation. In other words, outside of God, there was no one to obligate him in this way. However, I will argue secondarily that God was indeed obligated to do this. Now, why was he obligated? He was not obligated to do this because of our creatureliness and he was creator. He could have done that for angelic beings, but he did not. They are also his creatures. He could have done that for the animal populi. They are also his creatures, but he did not. So the question is, why was God not obligated and then obligated? Are you speaking in riddles? No. Here's what happens. God was not obligated to do this by any person extenuating pressure upon him in any way. But once God had made an internal choice, I now speak in the language of accommodation, anthropomorphic language, as it were, uh, because the mind of God is eternal. Once God made a decision to love us, And once God made a decision to place the Imago Dei, the image of God within us, and once God decided that he was going to be endeared toward us, as it were, he then chose to obligate himself soteriologically or salvifically toward man. So the first answer, God wasn't obligated by anyone outside of himself, but God chose to mysteriously obligate himself. And thus, in choosing to do that, here's how Scripture speaks to it. The Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world, before God ever gave us a where or a when, a now or a then, he had chosen that the Son of God, God of very God, was going to come and not only share humanity with us, but die among us as a representative of both God and man. And so the answer can be found within the complexity of the choice of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God, the grace, indeed the goodness of God. Thank you again for listening to Living Truth with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. If you would like to hear this podcast again or previous episodes, you may do so at passionforhisword.com. That's passionforhisword.com. You may also like us on Facebook at Living Truth Radio Broadcast. That's Living Truth Radio Broadcast. Again, our prayer for you is that God would sanctify you in truth, for His Word is truth.